Well, we're looking at uh, the Lord is good, and that's taken from here, uh, Psalm 34, verse, uh, it is here in Psalm 34, where it says there, yeah, it is in verse 8, no, taste and see that the Lord is good. And so we want to remind ourselves of the goodness of the Lord, because we go through a lot of things in life, and difficulties, and sickness, and everything else, and we can have a tendency to think that the Lord isn't good. And, and so one of the things that I love to do is, uh, you know, read the scriptures, I listen to audiobooks, I read books, all these things, is to try to hear what's the Lord saying to me through these different avenues. And so I wanted to share, by way of introduction, um, a, a section from this book that I'm going through. One of the books I'm going through right now, it's called The Good and Beautiful God by James Bryan Smith. And to give you a little background, I'm in, I'm in chapter two, or finished up chapter two in this book. And in that chapter, the title is God is Good. <laughs> And so as I was reading through this, to give you a little context, the author, when his, um, his eldest child was born, she was born with his, a chromosomal disorder. And so they told, the, they told him and his wife that she was going to um, die immediately after birth. And she ended up living just past her second birthday, but then she passed away. And he, he talks about kind of the heartache that they went through. And I just wanted to share a little section uh, related to her. Her name was Madeline. He said, it's now been a decade since Madeline died. So much now seems clear to me in regard to the nature of God. God's goodness is not something I get to decide upon. I am a human being. With limited understanding, and as I grow and mature in my walk of faith, I increasingly see how little I understand. In the end, I have the testimony of Jesus to stand on. My own experiences of disappointment with God say more about me and my expectations than they do about God. The goodness of God, I now see with greater clarity, is vast and consuming. Jesus never promises that our lives will be free of struggle. In fact, he said quite the opposite. In the world, ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. We should expect to go through heartache and pain, suffering and loss, because they are part of what it means to be human. And they can be useful in our development. As James said, my brothers and sisters, whether you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. I have grown much through my trials. I have grown much more through my trials than I have through my successes. I do not ask for trials, and I am not as deep in God's kingdom as was James, so I don't consider trials nothing but joy but I am learning to trust God in the midst of them. I thought it was really helpful for us to, to think about as we get into the scriptures today, because it's inevitable that trials are going to come. It's inevitable that we're going to have suffering and difficulty and sickness and experience death of loved ones and eventually the death of ourselves apart from the rapture of the church. And so in the midst of all that, we must remind ourselves that the Lord is good. The Lord isn't good because circumstances go the way we want them to go. The Lord is good because that's who he is. No matter what circumstance, we know that God is going to work it for our ultimate good. All right, so let's jump into Psalm 34. Then we'll pick up here, or we'll start in verse 1. But before we do, I want to read you the title there. We're told it's a Psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. 
We don't have time this morning to get into that background, but you can study it on your own. And what happened is David was on the run from Saul and he he thought, well, I'll go over to the Philistines and I'll get protection from there because Paul wouldn't go over with the Philistines. I'm sorry, Saul wouldn't go over with the Philistines. But he also took Goliath's sword with him. And they're like, hey, isn't this a dude that killed Goliath? And he was our hero. And so it was a big mess. So David pretended to be mad. And eventually he escaped from the Philistines. So it's kind of a a strange situation. And we can kind of study that separately um, as, as you wish. But the fact of the matter is in the midst of all of that, David saw God's hand was upon him. And that's really important. Because commentators and theologians will say, well, David wasn't right to pretend madness. And why was he doing? What was this? And there's this, there's this insinuation that God only works in our life if we're doing the right thing. Well, if God only works in our life when we're doing the right thing, he's going to hardly ever work in our lives. <laughs> because we're hardly ever doing the right thing. It's not our goodness. It, this, this sermon is not called, you know, the Steve is good. Okay. Or the Rick is good. Or the Dalton is good. It's called the Lord is good. It's about who he is, not about who we are. And so it's important that we understand that, that our focus is on him, that he uses us, he works in our life, not because of our goodness, but because of his goodness. So let's jump in. Verse one, it says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. David is exultant in his escape from the Philistines. Winston Churchill is said to have, um, is quoted as having said, there's nothing so exhilarating as being shot at and missed. <laughs> and, and so you think about Winston Churchill as he served, you know, the British military and, you know, World War I and other places, that this idea or this, this experience of someone shoots at you, the, the bullet whizzes by and the feeling of exaltation afterwards. And that's what David felt. He was exultant because he'd escaped the Philistines. So notice what he does. He commits to adoring the Lord at all times. He doesn't say, hey, I'm going to praise the Lord. I'm going to bless the Lord. I'm going to exalt the Lord. I'm going to lift up the Lord when things are going well for me. I'm going to lift up the Lord when my bank account is full. I'm going to lift it. No, he says, at all times, no matter what, that's what I'm committed to. And that's going to be, that's a tough commitment for us to, to handle. Because there are times where it doesn't feel like I want to bless the Lord. I'm angry with the Lord. I can't believe the Lord allowed this. But this is what David is doing. He's committing to to bless the Lord at all times. And notice he says, and I'm going to continue to praise the Lord with my mouth. And that's really important. I believe that it's not enough to praise God in our hearts. I don't believe it's enough. I don't believe it's enough to just say, well, it's kind of settled in my heart. I'm praising God right now. Something happens when we say the words out loud. Something happens when we communicate. There is something that takes place. You see, God has made us soul and body, not merely soul. So it's not enough for us to do things inwardly. We actually have to act them out with our body. And so I I love this, that he's willing to praise the Lord with his mouth. So good things happen when we praise God through speech and through song. So we want, to, we want to praise God with our speech as we're talking about things. We want to praise God with, with songs of thanksgiving. And, and so it's interesting. Well, how do we do this? How do we commit to this? How can we live this out? It's simple. We always talk about what we're focused on. You know, uh, you know I have different family members and, you know, they, they have like the, the TV going on all the time, right? Like family members in other places. And, and you know, and I've seen that. And, and, and they, they talk about whatever's on. For me, college football season, it's always playing in the background. And so I start talking about college football. Or it's interesting, I like to go on walks and, and I'm not trying to be creepy, but I notice that people have their TVs on. 
all times of day. And, and so if you're a person that has a TV on that's always on the news, and guess what? There, there's a saying among the news that if it bleeds, it leads. In other words, they're going to show you bad news. Your focus, what you're going to talk about is all the bad that's going on in this world. That's for any of us, right? So whatever we focus on, whatever we pour into it, that's what we talk about. So if we say, I want to be like David, I want to commit to blessing the Lord at all times. Well, what's going to have to happen is I'm going to have to start focusing on the Lord. I'm going to have to start thinking about the Lord and reading about the Lord and, and, and all of those things. And naturally, it's going to come out of my heart. Verses 2 and 3 says, my, my soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. And so there's, there's a couple of key elements here of praising God. First of all, it's humbly boasting in the Lord. Humbly boasting in the Lord. Notice what he says. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Why is this important? If we're going to boast in someone else, we have to have humility, right? As much as I like sports, so much of sports is built on pride. Look what I did. Look how I flipped this bat. Look how I point to my name on the back of my jersey. It's all about me. And so for us to be people who boast in the Lord, we're going to have to have humility. We're going to have to brag on God. Now, what's interesting about this is God wants us to brag about him. So if you're just like, I really want to brag. I, 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 just, I just made to be a braggart. God says, good news. I will let you brag. But it's only about him. Would you turn with me for just a moment to Jeremiah? Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 9 for a moment. So, sure, turn right a bit. Jeremiah chapter 9. I want to look at verses 23 and 24 here. Now, so uh, he's going to use the word glory here, but we could use the word boast. So this is what the Lord says. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory or boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. Okay, so first of all, he's saying what not to do. He says, if you're wise, don't boast about it. He says, if you're strong, don't boast about it. If you're rich, don't boast about it. So it doesn't say you can't be wise or you can't be strong, or you can't be rich. He says, fine, don't boast in those things. But then now he tells us what we can boast in, what can glory. He says, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. So we want to brag about something, brag about the, the fact that you know God. Now it's interesting the thing is, when you start glorying in the Lord and you start really understanding and knowing him, you're going to boast in him and not yourself. It won't be a boasting of like, I'm so much better than you guys and I know so much more than you do. It'll be, isn't God amazing? Isn't he good? These are all the wonderful things about him. Because notice, it says that we're your boast that the Lord exercises loving kindness and righteous judgment and he, he, he demonstrates righteousness in the earth and God delights in that. You know why? Because that's reality. You know, it's the old thing of they say, it ain't bragging if you can do it. <laughs> so as we brag on the Lord, we're bragging about things he can do. The, the reason why boasting hits us wrong when we see someone else doing it, because we notice, we know ultimately there's a falseness to it. Because the power to hit that home run, score that touchdown, make that basket is actually a power that's only been granted to them from God. 
It's not anything that they have intrinsically. But God, everything he has, he has it intrinsically. God doesn't borrow from anyone. God doesn't take from anyone. He is all in himself. That's what's exciting to think about. So you and I, we can be humble and boast in the Lord. That's an exciting thing. All right, back to Psalm 34, verse 3 now. Notice here we have the second kind of key element of praising God here. He says, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. And so uh, this is this praising, right, should have this command aspect to it. Okay. Notice he says, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Um, let us exalt his name together. So David is, is commanding this, but it's also communal as well. Notice he says, we're going to do this together right? Magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. And that's part of the reason why we're going to, to one service is, you know, to have everyone being able to fellowship together at once, to praise God together, to worship God together, to encourage one another and see how each other are doing. Those are all part of what we're trying to accomplish. And so it's exciting to think about this, that as we praise God together, something happens. And this is good practice. Because I would encourage you, if you haven't read the book of Revelation in a while, read the book of Revelation. Lots of praising together. Lots of worshiping together. Lots of the fellowship of the saints. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation praising God together. Let's move on to verse 4. It says, I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. So David pursued the Lord, right? He says, I sought the Lord. I went after the Lord and the Lord rescued me. The Lord delivered me. The Lord saved me from all these fears. He delivered me from the Philistines. And if you're familiar with David's life, God had, pers- uh, sorry, um, had delivered David over and over and over again. But what I want to remind you of here is that first of all, David had a relationship with the Lord, an established relationship with the Lord. Okay, David I was a person who was seeking after the Lord. And as he was seeking after the Lord, then the Lord rescued him. Then the Lord delivered him. Verse five says, I sought, I'm sorry. They looked to him and were radiant and their, their faces were not ashamed. This is the experience of worshiping believers. When, when, when worshipers, when we as believers really decide to worship the Lord, and we just focus on him, there's a radiance associated with that. There's, there's something happens, something changes. You see, as we look to the Lord and we praise him, then what's going to happen is you're going to be radiant with an unashamed countenance. It's going to be a beautiful thing. And so if you're familiar you know, with the, the, the books of Moses, then you realize that when Moses went up on the mountain and spent time with the Lord, when he would come down, he didn't realize his face was glowing. And everybody kind of freaked out about it. And they're like, Moses, could you kind of put something over your face? (laughs) So they made him kind of like a little curtain to to have over his face until kind of that glow died away. And they're like, okay, we can see you now. And you go up again and come down and like, whoa, too much, Moses. That's really what's going to happen to us. You've probably experienced people in your life that have spent a lot of time with the Lord. And there's, there's a radiance. There's a countenance. It's inevitable. Your mom was right. You become like who you hang out with. Okay, God is glorious. God is beautiful. God is radiant. If you hang out with him, you're going to become radiant. Doesn't matter age, doesn't matter ability, doesn't matter any of those things. You spend time in his presence. What's going to happen is you're going to become radiant. Verse six says, this poor man cried out and the Lord heard him 
and saved him out of all his troubles. Notice that he says this poor man cried out. Now, when David is, is riding this and when he's hanging out, they think that he's here at the cave of Adullam. And it's kind of when all the people kind of came out to him, everybody who was distressed and in debt, you know, uh, that they were, they were all in kind of difficulty. So he's in a situation where he's very impoverished and he recognizes that. So David recognized his own poverty. He had nothing to offer God. David needed a complete rescue. And so what happened, because David recognized that, he understood that the Lord was able to rescue him. You know, if, if you go out, you know, and you end up being lost at sea, okay, and then here comes the Coast Guard to rescue you, you're not offering them anything. You know, as, as they're, the helicopter's there and they're lowering, you know, that cage to come pick you up, you're not like, well, let me guys help you out with that. Let me just get this down into the water. No, no, no. You have nothing to offer them. They are completely the ones rescuing you. And that's how it is with us and the Lord. So often, you know, it's like the, the Lord takes us out for this meal and you're like, well, let me get the tip. Let me, I, I, just, I just help you out, Lord. No, you and I have nothing to offer him. Nothing, no thing, because whatever, you know, will we have, whatever body we have, whatever spirit we have, God made that and he holds it together. I love what, how Jesus put it in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 3, and we'll get to it again in a little bit. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, blessed are those who recognize their spiritual poverty and, and depend completely on him because he says, I'll give you the kingdom. That's what I'll give for you. So, so it's really important to us, and this is going to be a, a little catchphrase, and I probably stole it from somewhere, as I always do. When we come to God with nothing, he will give us everything. When we come to God with no thing, he will give us everything. And so that's why he tells us things like be anxious for no thing, because he says you can't hold on to it. It's not yours. So when we come to God with nothing, he's going to give us everything. And in fact, we're told he has given us everything in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It says his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Another book that I'm reading right now and going through with the ministry team is, is called Life Without Lack. And it's, it's based on this truth that every single thing we need, every single thing that we have, everything comes from the Lord. We bring nothing to the equation. You, you and I didn't have any kind of control over our conception, over our birth, any of those things. We haven't kept our heart beating. We haven't kept our brain functioning. God's done it all. And so when we trust him in that, then he can work in our lives. Verse seven says, the angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Now, there's a little bit debate on this, the angel there. You know, in some translations, it's a lowercase angel. Other translations, it's an uppercase angel. If it's lowercase, it's, you know, it's, it's an angel like Michael or Gabriel or one of those. If it's uppercase and it's an angel of the Lord, who we understand to be the pre-incarnate Christ. So we don't know, right? Who, who was this? Was it, you know, an angel who's a God servant or was it God himself? You know what? It doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter for our purposes because what the big idea is simply this, that God supernaturally intervenes in the lives of believers. God supernaturally intervenes in the lives of believers. He has delivered you. Please understand if you're here today and you are at least physically, uh, you're here today. God has delivered you to this very moment. There's countless times in your life that maybe you and I don't recognize where we could have died. That God brought us here. 
that God provided for us so that we would make it to this moment. So God has delivered you to this moment and he will continue to deliver you until he delivers you to heaven. That's a reality. So that's what God does. God supernaturally intervenes in our lives. He holds everything together. He's going to deliver us as long as he wants us here. And then the day will come where he delivers us to heaven. Now, I talked last week about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about them today. I've been thinking about them a lot. You know, and so it's just a reminder, like, like with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God either delivers you through the fire or he will deliver you by the fire. Either God's going to deliver you through that difficulty, that hardship, that sickness, or, or he's going to use that thing to deliver you to himself. So please remember, everything that you've gone through here, he's either delivered to you through it, and then one day he'll deliver you by it. And so that's important for us to realize, to remember that God has a plan, a purpose, a story for our life. And here we come to it. Verse eight says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, what is, this is an incredibly vital verse. It's, it's often used. And I remember uh, learning it back when I was in Calvary, Houston, years and years ago. And, and, and I kind of didn't really understand what it meant at first. I was, it's just so literal. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That seems weird. Okay, but what is it saying? It's saying that you can only know that the Lord is good through personal experience, okay? So you and I, as we witness to unbelievers, you know, we, we, can, we can talk to them about the Lord and we can share about the Lord and they can see the Lord through our life. But until they have a personal relationship with him, until they experience him personally, they can't know. They can't know what it's like. And we understand this because this is how it is in life. Brandy and I like to go to Tacos Divino and, and we usually get the coconut shrimp tacos. And I could talk to you about it all day, But until you actually go and try it, you won't experience the goodness. (laughs) When you go and have it, then you'll say, oh, this is what it's like. There's no way to theoretically know the Lord. You have to experience him. You have to have personal relationship. Now, here's the thing is the Lord wants you to experience him more and more. He wants you to know his goodness more and more. And so he's going to take you through through, through some valleys. There's going to be mountaintops, there's going to be plains, but, but I would encourage you kind of a, a mission uh, to, to go to Psalm 23. We'll go, go there in a minute, but what I'd say is, is to memorize Psalm 23, to make it your mission to memorize Psalm 23. And, and then maybe some of you have memorized it before and you can kind of like, you know, speed trials. <laughs> you can say it so quickly, you know it, but actually take some time to really meditate and think through it. Because I, I think it's, it's a beautiful picture of the Christian life. It's a beautiful picture of experiencing God and his goodness through whatever may come in our lives. Now, so taste and see that the Lord is good. You have to experience him personally to know that. And then he says, blessed is a man who trusts in him. Blessed is a man who trusts in him. Okay, so you're experiencing that the Lord is good. But then as you grow in a relationship with him, you must begin to trust him. Hebrews eleven six, but without faith, it's impossible to please him because the one who comes to him must believe that he is and that he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. There's this trust. Now, this word trust here in the Hebrew, it means to put confidence or hope in. To put confidence or hope in. Now, I don't know if you've kept up with sports this week, but there's a, there's a lot of football wranglings between A&M and Alabama. <laughs> A lot of anger and frustration. And it's interesting because A&M got all these good recruits, but I'll be honest with you, I'm not gonna put my confidence or hope in them (laughs) because they've disappointed me too many times. 
But that's not so with the Lord. The Lord wants us to put all our confidence, all our hope in him. If we're kind of, in a, kind of using the gambling terms, we're putting all our chips to the center and betting on the Lord. And so what happens when we do that? What happens when we put our confidence or hope in him? Notice, we'll be blessed. The, the person who trusts the Lord is blessed. Blessed with what? Blessed with salvation. Blessed with peace. Blessed with friendship with God and with friendship with other believers. Blessed with security. Blessed with purpose. Blessed with direction. Blessed with a future. Blessed with great and precious promises. And the list goes on and on and on and on into eternity. That's the blessing. But you and I, what do we do so often? Well, I want to trust in the stock market. Well, I want to trust in the next politician because even though every politician that I've ever voted for hasn't really lived up, the next one will be different. I, I, I want to trust in, in the weather. I want to trust in retirement. I want to trust in education. I want to trust in all these things that we know ultimately will fail us. That's what we want to do instead, though, is, is trust in the Lord because that's where blessedness is found. So look at verses 9 and 10. It says, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want <clears throat> to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Big takeaway from verses 9 and 10, God provides for his people. Right? And, and so I can't tell you an exhaustive list of how he's going to provide for you. I can just tell you this is what God says. I say, well, God hasn't provided for this or God hasn't provided that. But that's between you and him. Okay? That's between me and him when I act like that. I'm just telling you what the scriptures say. And so I'm just going to believe what the scriptures say. I want to be that blessed person who puts their confidence, their hope, their trust in him. So I want to take you to a few places where God makes these promises over and over again. So let's turn for just a moment back to Psalm 23. Let's look at Psalm 23 quickly. I just want to read it. And we see here that same idea that God provides for his people. David writes, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want or I shall not lack. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, again, familiar, I'd encourage you to memorize it. I'm working on, on memorizing it, just every word, just right. But what I want you to focus on before we move on is the fact that the focus is on the Lord, right? The, the Lord is my shepherd, and notice he's the one doing the things. He makes me to lie down. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It's all about the Lord. He's the one doing these things. He's the one interacting. He's the one investing. And so it's really, really important for us to, to focus, to put the focus back on the Lord, that the Lord is the one doing these things. The Lord is the one interacting, that this whole idea of living out the Christian life wasn't our idea. It's the Lord's idea. And so he gives us all the power, ability to do those things. All right. With that said, let's jump into the New Testament to Matthew chapter six, if you would. Matthew chapter six. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, I want to look at verses 24 through 34. Again, focusing in on God's promised provision. Picking up at verse 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Very interesting. I don't think it's, it's a mistake 
that Jesus spoke about mammon here, which is really the God of money, before he gets into this do not worry. Because they're all kind of stuff, right? You know, man, gas prices and inflation and these kind of things and all this worry. And so there's, there's this tendency, there's this draw for us, even as believers, to serve the God of money. Got to focus on the money. The money's where it's at. This is what Jesus says next. So, therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, <laughs> what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not, the life more than, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, how they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? Why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Now, there's a couple of things I want to bring out about these birds and these lilies for just a moment. Birds don't worry, but birds are active. Right? The bird doesn't just wait in the nest and say, well, God said he'll provide. Just, you know, the babies do that. But once they get to a certain age, they go out and do it. They're busy, right? They're active, but they're not worried. So God's not saying to you, hey, just stay home, you know, play video games, don't ever get a job, and it'll be fine, I'll take care of you. No, God has given you ability, gifting, education to go out there and to work, but trust that he's going to provide for you. And then I think the thing about the lilies is the lilies are planted, Right, God wants us to be planted in him, to be rooted in him, to receive the rain that he gives, the sun that he gives so that we may grow. But worrying never clothes anybody in anything good. Worry is, is, is a detriment. It destroys. It doesn't enrich. And so they, picking up in 31, therefore do not worry saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for after all these things the Gentiles seek. In other words, that's code for unbelievers. He says, for your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. And so here it is. What are we to do? What is our first priority? He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about its own things and sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I dare you, I dare me to take Jesus at his word. I dare you. To just say, you know, I'm going to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to me. And guess what? Man, man, some kind of crazy thing happens. You're never provided for. It'll give you and Jesus something to talk about when you get to heaven. (laughs) Right? Jesus, I, I, I obeyed your word and look how it went. So do it. Take him at his word. I would encourage you, uh, is, is, apparently this is like book guide day. Uh, but another book I would encourage you to read is called Abandoned to God. And it's about Oswald Chambers, uh, who, who did the My Utmost for His Highest. And it's about his life and him taking this seriously. And it's absolutely inspiring. You know, and, 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 and he died at a relatively young age, what we would consider a young age. But he fulfilled what God called him to. And the fruit of his life has just lasted decade after decade after decade. And so it's important for us to do this because, you know, they, they say the, the, the biggest problem with Christianity is it hasn't been tried. And so for you and I, to just do it. Now, I'll take you one more place before I bring us back to the Psalms, and that's Philippians. Now, would you turn to Philippians chapter 4? Philippians chapter 4. So turn right a bit more. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. 
Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. And here it is. Be anxious for nothing. In the Greek, it means no thing. (laughs) Nothing. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now, we often stop there. Because there's a lot for us to take apart, a lot to pray about. But I think that this is only possible as we move into verses 8 and 9. He says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of a good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the peace of God will be with you or the God of peace, I'm sorry, the God of peace will be with you. And so all of this is tied together, but all of it comes back down to this God providing for his people as they trust in him. This is what the scripture is saying. This is is what's so awesome about getting to teach the word of God, because I can do it in such a way, and I don't have to back it up. Because it's not my word, it's God's word. And so if you and I have a problem with any of this, then we are the ones that that actually have a problem with the Lord about it. That's good. And, And so you know, one of the things that, that I've started doing with my own studies, and I'll kind of give you a little insight, is, is that so often I teach for you guys, but it's not for me. I, I teach these truths to you, but then I go home and act like they're not true for me. I believe them for you, but not for me. So what I've started doing and try to humble myself is actually I'll go afterwards and listen to my sermons as if somebody else taught it. I'll just listen to it as if it was somebody else. And that way I can, I'll, I can like ignore all the mess ups. I listen to it like it's somebody else and then just say, am I receiving that for me? I need to not only teach other people, but I need to live this out. I need to, to, to preach to myself. And so it's, it's been very, very helpful in saying to me myself, am I actually living out the things that I teach people? And that's vital for us. That it can't be that we come together on a Sunday morning just to check a box on our Christian obligation chart but instead say, hey, is the Lord real or is he not? Is he speaking today or is he not? Is he investing? Because if he's not in this life, if he's not a part of that, then let's just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. But if he's a part of this whole thing, if he is a center of this whole thing, then there's something to be done. There's, there's, there is something to be done as I walk it out with him. All right, let's turn back to Psalm, Psalm 34, and we'll continue on in verses 11 through 14 now. David writes, come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may say good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So I love this. What do we have in verses 11 through 14? We have David's instruction for fearing the Lord. So, so, you know, all throughout the scriptures, it says, you know, the fear of the Lord, fear of the Lord, fear of the Lord, and the fear of the Lord's beginning of wisdom and all of that. So, so what, do we, what does David say? He says, hey guys, if you desire life and good, then do these things. Okay, well, okay, sign me up. I desire life. I desire good. So he says, don't speak evil. Don't tell lies. Don't speak evil about people. Don't tell lies. Okay. And then he says, also flee from evil. So when you see evil glowing on, and I would even apply this when you just see like wickedness on your television screen. Okay, flee from that. Get away from that. And then he says, once you flee from evil, though, then actively do good. Actively do good. Go after the good. Pursue the good. 
And then he says, purposely pursue peace with God and with others. Actively seek to have a peaceful relationship with God. Actively seek to repent and and to set things right where they've gone wrong. Actively pursue peace. Where you've sinned people, Jesus says, leave your gift at the altar and go out to them and, and make right with them. Actively pursue that. Now, this is a reminder as we think about verses 11 through 14, the life with God is not passive. Life with God is not passive. It's not going to happen by accident. It's an active pursuit. Jesus, the greatest person who ever lived, the the only sinless person who ever lived, didn't sit around waiting for God the Father to show up. He pursued him. He sought, sought him in prayer, sought him in the word, sought to serve him, sought to reach out to people. Again, as my unending list of books I'll suggest is The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. It's the best book I found on what does it look like to just pursue God, to go after him. And, And so that's what God is calling us to do. Any relationship worth having is worth pursuing. We know that. If you wanna have an active relationship with your spouse or with your child or with your parent or whatever, it takes a pursuit. Jesus pursued us. Why should we not pursue him in return? Now let's continue on. Verses 15 through 17 says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Okay, so, so the, the, the big idea from this section is that the eyes and ears of the Lord are open to the righteous. Okay, to those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, God's ears are open to you. God's eyes are open to you. Okay, God, God wants to hear from you. God wants to see you. God wants to, to have that relationship with you. But those who go against God will find God to be their enemy. If they continue in their rebellion, they will be cut off permanently. That's a big idea. So it's, so, you know, we, we start off this life as enemies to God, but we surrender to him and we become part of his family. But a person who's dead set against God, you know, they, they are eventually going to find themselves outside of relationship with him. Now, so, so this is really, we can, can divide this up into two sections, the righteous and the unrepentant. The, right, the righteous, what do you have to look forward to? You have the new heaven and the new, new earth to look forward to where righteousness dwells. The end will be better than the beginning. You have that to look forward to. And so I was kind of thinking about that this morning and imagine, it's kind of a poor illustration, but I use it anyway because I use a lot of poor illustrations. Uh, You think about Hawaii. Think about the day was coming where a family member of yours you knew was gonna go to Hawaii and live there forever. And here was the only catch though. You were never gonna get to see them again as long as you lived where you lived. So the day was coming where they were going to move to Hawaii. You wouldn't be able to see them or talk to them anymore. But you knew that once they got there, it was all expenses paid. And you knew that once they got there, they would never have any more diseases. They wouldn't age anymore. Just everything would be all right for them. If you sat around and said, I hope you never get to Hawaii, that would be a jerk move. But how much more when we know that our loved ones who are believers, the day is coming where they're going to go to better than Hawaii. They're going to go to heaven. And so, yes, will we miss them when they go? Absolutely. But we realize that is a wonderful thing. And as we want that for our our family members, what's going to happen is we're going to want that for us as well. And so let's do our work while we're here. But please remember that our life here on earth is a mission trip at best. It's a mission trip when you have a mission for a certain season, but the day is coming when we're gonna go to be with the Lord. Now, the same thing is not true with the unrepentant. The unrepentant, what they have to look forward to is they have it to the great white throne judgment. 
where they're going to be judged for their sins because they haven't placed their faith in Christ and his finished work. So they're going to be separated from God forever and then into the lake of fire. So for the unbeliever, this is as close as they'll get to heaven, this life. But for the believer, this is as close as we're going to get to hell, this life. So it's important for us to, to believe that. When we start believing that, when we start believing the best is yet to come, we're gonna go be with our savior, that he's gonna wipe every tear from our eyes, no more death, no more pain. Then all of a sudden, there's an expectation of looking forward to. And as we have that expectation, the radiance grows, and now we become more effective witnesses to those around us. Verse 18 says, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. That word broken actually means broken into pieces. And the word contrite means crushed into powder. That is radical. And so, so God is near to us when our hearts have been broken into pieces. When our hearts have been crushed into powder, God is near to us. That's a radical, radical thing. This heart broken into pieces, spirit crushed into powder. The Lord is near to and delivers those who have this broken heart and this contrite spirit. And this is important for us because oftentimes we think God is far away when things are hard. God is far away when things hurt. God, no, 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 no. It says God is very, very near. God is at your shoulder when those things happen. And, and so I kind of think about the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. What did God enjoy about that? What did Jesus enjoy about that as he gave that parable? Is he says, you know, the good Samaritan did the right thing because he found that person who was hurt and helpless and carried him and provided for him. If Jesus made the good Samaritan the hero of that story, is that not Jesus's heart? When, when through circumstances and situations of life, you're there, you know, just beaten to death on the side of the road, will Jesus not show up? Will Jesus not come to bring that balm to you? See, it says in Psalm 51, verse 17, David's famous repentance psalm, he said this, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. So often we think, well, if I could just put myself together, if I could just kind of take myself up, if I can kind of take my heart and spirit and get out the spiritual super glue and put it all together, then I can offer it to God. God says, I don't want it. God says, I, I, I want a broken heart. I want a contrite spirit. Give those to me and I can be the fullness I can be the one to put you back together. As long as you're trying to kind of take your brokenness and put it back together, it's not going to work. I, I want to be the one to put you back together. I want to be the one that gives you that exchange life. So God is able, God is willing, God desires to work in our brokenness. And why does he do that? Because in our brokenness, we're not able to resist. You know, a wounded animal, right? There's very dangerous because they just want to go after you. But an animal who's so wounded, who knows he can't help himself anymore, will let you work on him. And so, so God doesn't want us kind of like partially wounded because then we're going to fight back. And God says, I, I, want your, I want your heart broken into pieces. I want your spirit crushed to powder because then you'll realize there's no hope for me. I can't do this. I need someone outside of me to do the work. Jesus said this, again, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verses 3 and 4. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That mourning can be, you know, mourning of our own fallenness, our own spiritual condition, over things around us. God says, as you mourn, as you're broken, as you're hurt, then I'm going to come and comfort you. 
And I love this about, it says of Jesus, it was prophesied in Isaiah, but it, Matthew writes it in Matthew 12, verse 20, says of the Messiah that a bruised reed he will not break and smoking flax he will not quench. So you kind of think about your own life. Maybe you're like this bruised reed, just, just broken over. And God doesn't, Jesus doesn't come and just snap it off and throw it. He actually, you know, puts, puts a little stick there and kind of winds and things about so it can grow back. And when you're this smoking flax about to go out, Jesus doesn't just come and lick his fingers and snuff you out, but he comes and he, he fans it back into flame. That's, that's who Jesus is. Verse 19 says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him, him out of all. Okay, so this is reality, right? This is what Jesus tells us, that, that, that we, you're gonna have difficulty, hardship. David experiences. David, time after time after time, had to be delivered from King Saul because King Saul went after him again and again and again and again. Philistines tried to kill him again and again and again. But what happened? The Lord continued to deliver him. Jesus tells us in John 16, verse 33, in the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. If, if God allows some tribulation to kill you, that, that tribulation has delivered you. <laughs> He's delivered you to him. This is what Paul says. This is another verse I've been thinking about this week. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. It says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. I encourage you to, to, to meditate on that verse this week, to read it. But here's, here's something that the Lord just kind of spoke to me out of the blue about this. I, I'd never seen it before somehow. This is what Paul says. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And so, so this, this idea popped into my mind and I thought it was from the Lord. So I went home, I, I looked at the Greek and what I found is that word for us, it actually means to work to a desired end. So here's what God's doing. Through the suffering, tribulation, hardship in your life, God is actually using that to give you more glory. That's what it is. That's what it means. It means that whenever God piles suffering onto your life and you say it's too much, Remind yourself that when it comes to the heavenly account, God is just saying, I want you to have more glory later. So, so that's why Paul could embrace that suffering, that hardship, because he realizes that it just means more glory for me later. God is wanting to invest in you. He's wanting to grow your eternal bank account. Whatever that looks like, however that happens, that's what God wants for you. So when God piles difficulty upon our lives Please understand in the midst of that hardship and the tears and the pain, God wants something really, really good for me later. That's what he's doing. That's what the scriptures say. Verse 20 says, he guards all his bones and none of them is broken. It's really interesting here because David speaks of this himself through all David's hardships and difficulties and everything. He escaped with all his bones intact, which is a pretty radical thing that David, that God did in David's life. But it's also prophetic of the Lord Jesus. Because this is picked up in the New Testament, speaking of a prophecy of the Lord Jesus, because the Lord Jesus was the perfect Passover lamb. And if you're familiar, none of the bones could be broken of the Passover lamb. And so that applied to Jesus as well. Verse 21, he shall slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. And so a couple of things to notice here. We see, first of all, this evil, this evil shall slay the wicked. There's really two kind of evils I want to focus on for just a moment. The evil of sin and the evil of misery. Evil of sin and the evil of misery. The evil of sin, in other words, the actions of the wicked will come back on them and destroy them. You see this all through the Proverbs. 
right? They lay a net and it comes, you know, it's a snare for themselves. But there's also the evil of misery. You see, the end of the unrepentant wicked will be endless misery and eternal separation from God. Evil doesn't pay. The evil of sin will come back to them and they'll experience the evil of misery for all time. And then it says here, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. So those who hate God's sons and daughters will enter into judgment. Now here's the good news. You and I don't have to be the ones to enter them into judgment. You and I don't have to be the ones of like, oh, they said this to me. I'm going to roast them on the internet. I'm going to kind of do that. No, no, no. God will take care of that. So the exhortation here for us as believers though is that as believers, we're not only called to love our enemies, but we're also called to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because sometimes, you know, we can be the ones who hate the righteous. We can bring condemnation on our own life because we say, well, I'm going to love my enemies and pray for them. But then the people we go to church with sometimes, we're like, I can't stand you. Not this church, you know, but I've heard in other churches that could happen. And so I just want to remind you what Jesus said in John 13, verses 34 and 35. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I've loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So we remind ourselves, okay, I want to love the righteous. I want to love fellow believers, even though they're fallen, you know, even though they have problems because they're just like me, I'm going to keep loving them. Verse 22 says, the Lord redeems the souls of his servants. I love that word redeems. It means to ransom or buy back. So God has ransomed us. The Lord Jesus has redeemed us, has ransomed our souls through his death on the cross. And he said this in Matthew 20, verse 28. He says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And then the last verse here says, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. And so Romans 8, 1 tells us there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, that, that we are no longer condemned. We've passed from condemnation into judgment. Now, so uh, to, by way of closing, I, I want to kind of expand on this theme of uh, that no one's condemned and that the fact that, that the Lord is good. By having you turn to one last place, would you turn to Romans chapter 8? Romans chapter 8. I want to look at verses 31 through 39 and just use this by way of close because I think it's always a good place for us to go as we often are tempted to doubt God's goodness because of all the fallenness of this world. And we need to remind ourselves about how the story ends. We need to remind ourselves of how God's going to work it out. So Romans 8, starting in verse 31, Paul says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are all, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord.